Well, we are continuing our series on church discipline this morning, and so I'm glad you're all here to be disciplined. This morning we are talking in particular about the constraint of a believer. So if you have your copy of the Word of God, you can grab that, and we will be looking, first of all, at the book of Galatians. Just by way of reminder and refresher, uh, we said last week that the thing that prompted me to do this series was I read an article that talked about how church discipline is the parallel to evangelism in the church. And that struck me because uh, church discipline, well, evangelism seeks to rescue those who are enslaved to their sin outside the church, uh, and church discipline seeks to rescue those who are enslaved to sin inside the church. And I thought that's a good way to approach this series. As we talk about such a serious matter, what we're really talking about is evangelizing those who are already in the faith. We want to rescue them from the dominating effects of sin in their lives. And so it's my hope and my purpose as we started in on this series just to show you that the primary purpose of church discipline is restorative in nature. It's not to drive somebody away. It's not to get rid of them. It is to restore a relationship that is broken and bring about repentance and forgiveness. And so in a very real sense, it is evangelizing those who are saved. This morning is part two of five, and as I said, we're looking at five motivations this whole series, five motivations for practicing church discipline so that we will know how to rescue those who are enslaved to their sin. And so as we looked at last week, the commitment of a father to discipline his children, uh, this week we are looking at the constraint of a believer, that is their, their own need for self-control, their own need to self-discipline, as it were. Uh, next week we'll look at the care of a brother. You can see it there, the concern of a community and the cleanliness of the church, ultimately uh, the need for the holiness in the community of God. So let me ask you a question this morning as we look and talk about the constraint of a believer. Is it better to diffuse a bomb before the timer starts or after it starts? What do you think? Definitely before, right? Is it better to change the oil in your car before the engine blows or after the engine blows? Is it better to prepare to go home for lunch on a Sunday morning or to go out after church? Uh, No, that doesn't really apply, does it? (laughs) The whole whole point of this is proactivity. And so this morning we're going to see uh, two ways that we as individuals uh, can proactively avoid the need for church discipline uh, by constraining sin in our own lives. Self-control is the idea. Self-control. Okay, and so uh, preventative measures are always better. It's always better to be proactive than reactive. We say that all the time in counseling. It's better to love your wife and to show her affection than wait till your marriage is on the rocks and come in and get marital counseling, right? It's just proactivity versus reactivity. And so this morning, the first way to avoid the need for church discipline and to not be the source of problems is to keep yourself from sinning. And I know that sounds easier said than done, but that's the truth of the matter, is that if you will keep yourself from sinning, you won't have to worry about it, right? And so the first stage of church discipline is self-discipline. 
somebody has once said, and I think they said it well, that uh, self-discipline is both the beginning and the end of all church discipline. And that is the idea that not only should somebody keep themselves from sinning and enter into the process of church discipline, but even the process of church discipline ultimately should bring about in that person who's struggling the ability to control their own sin. There needs to be in the restorative process an effort at helping that person become self-controlled. Okay, so, so mature believers who are self-disciplined, they keep themselves from entering into short-term sin or habitual sin uh, and breaking those kind of sin patterns, thus avoiding the need for restorative measures, right? That would be the hope. So the ultimate goal is self-discipline. For those who are new in the faith, whether you're not a mature believer but you're an immature believer, for if you're new in the faith, the goal would be to cultivate self-discipline in your life uh, correcting wrong behavior, and certainly if you have, as I said, just come through a wrong behavior pattern, hopefully you're getting counseling to correct that behavior uh, to, to really keep the need for, self, uh, for church discipline at bay, in essence. So turn to Galatians chapter 5 if you're not there. Let me just show you this from the Word of God. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There you see it there, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's an old adage, you may want to write this down, but it essentially says this. If you seek to keep the law, you'll disobey the law. He who seeks to keep the law disobeys the law, but he who walks by the Spirit becomes a doer of the law. So you want to understand how the law and the flesh and the Spirit work together? That's how it works together. If you try to keep the law in your flesh, you'll break it. You'll disobey it. If you walk in the Spirit, you'll become a doer of the law. And that is what we're after this morning. Uh, Self-control, the word uh, is basically, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, And it's as close as we get to biblical terminology uh, to the word self-discipline. It's it's, uh, self-control. And the term has to do with sort of curbing or restraining the flesh and its desires. It's it's being controlled in one's spirit. In the context of Galatians 5, it... it, uh, it involves the deeds of the flesh. You see that in uh, verses 19 to 21. Uh, which, by the way, as you go through those, that list of deeds of the flesh, you see that? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. Uh, these are all deeds of the flesh that one is supposed to restrain themselves from. And by the way, notice that There's 18 listed there, and 15 of the 18 have to do with divisiveness within the body of Christ. Divisiveness. So, when we think about church discipline, the reason that's important is because ultimately what's at stake is the unity of the local congregation. And these sins of divisiveness need to be, uh, in a sense, dealt with. Or if somebody has broken the fellowship, they need to be restored to the fellowship. 
So divisiveness underlies these deeds of the flesh, if I could say it that way. The ideal for self-control we find in the book of Proverbs, right? We've all read through the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 16.32, why don't you turn there? Let's look at some of these and just, just understand that the best way that we can avoid church discipline in our own lives is to, is to live a self-controlled life. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures his city. So the encouragement there is for a man to have control over his spirit. And notice control of the spirit particularly relates to anger. Uh, one who loses his, his temper does not have control over his spirit. Uh, Proverbs seventeen twenty seven. He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Uh, Proverbs nineteen eleven. Why don't you turn over to Proverbs nineteen eleven? A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So control over his anger. I want you also to turn over to the New Testament very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9. I want you to see one other place that gives us kind of a good idea of what this word means. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9. It says, But if they cannot control themselves, they must marry, since it is better to marry than to burn. So in this context, we see the word control again, and the idea there is to, to be self-controlled regarding sexual desire, but the word certainly is not restricted to that sense. It's, it's any kind of self-control over one's desires, their passions, uh, their fleshly lusts. In English, we might use words like self-constraint, uh, self-denial, austerity, non-indulgence, abstinence, continence, uh, even the extreme of asceticism, right? We see even that uh, to communicate this idea of restricting one's pleasures in life, restricting the fleshly lusts. The Puritans use the word mortification, right? You've heard that word mortification, to mortify the flesh, to convey the same idea. As we think about this, though, I just want to make a distinction here, and that is between the words self-control and self-discipline. The term self-control emphasizes the effect, whereas self-discipline emphasizes the cause. Okay, and that's it's really important to understand because self-control is the product or the effect. Self-discipline is what causes self-control. One must be disciplined in order to be controlled. Okay. So self-discipline is the process that leads to the condition of self-control in a believer's life. No self-discipline, no self-control. That's the point. So, does every believer have a responsibility to control their own sin? I think think the scriptures would say yes, right? And, And because their sin as an individual has implications on the group as a whole. If you stumble or enter into sin yourself, it affects other people. It doesn't affect just you. So each and every believer has a personal responsibility to 
proactively deal with sin in their own lives. In fact, a a self-controlled Christian even knows when to get help for themselves. They know when to get help rather than waiting for other people to offer it. That's what self-control is talking about. So even in their self-discipline, they're self-controlled. So, uh, importantly, let me say this. As we look at Galatians 5 in particular, uh, self-discipline is to be done not in the flesh. You don't muster self-reform. It's to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And so... Uh, self-discipline is to be done in the power of the Spirit, and our self-control comes as a result of yielding to the Spirit's power over our lives. Now, obviously, the difficulty with that is, unfortunately, we live in a day and age where, like the believers in Acts 9-2, people are saying, I don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit, let alone know how to live in the power of Him. So how do we, as believers, live in the power of the Spirit? That's where I wanted to talk to you this morning for a little while. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness, right? Godliness is, is profitable um, for all things. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8, godliness is profitable. So the difficulty is for us as believers that we're little used to disciplining ourselves in any area of life, let alone spiritually, Right? Uh, You think about our entertainment choices, our social networking, cell phones, food, material possessions. We don't really restrict ourselves or deny ourselves any of our desires in life, do we? Rarely do we deny ourselves anything. And so we live in a culture that is used to having everything we want at our disposal. Uh, And so self-discipline is a difficult concept for us to grasp. When it comes time for disciplining ourselves in spiritual matters, it's like we're completely unprepared. We just have no training in it. It would be like trying to compete in the Olympics when you've never done any training for it. That's how ridiculous it would be. So how does one keep oneself from sinning in the power of the Spirit? You've probably asked yourself that question. I don't really know how to appropriate the Spirit to my personal walk. How do I do that? It seems like I'm doing things in the flesh, but I'm supposed to do them in the Spirit, so how do I tell the difference? Well, I think this quote by David Peterson might help, and then I'm going to talk a little bit afterwards about some, some implications of this. A holiness of life is not simply attained by moral effort, nor even by striving to keep the law of God. It's not even a matter of letting go and letting God. A practical holiness involves putting to death in our lives what God has already sentenced to death on the cross. That's called mortification. And living out the new life given to us by the indwelling Christ. That's called vivification. Human effort is required, but not apart from nor distinct from the activity of God's Spirit who subdues the flesh as we mortify it in his power and as we set our minds upon the things of the Spirit. So I don't know if that helps you, but it's, you're not doing it on your own. You're not mustering personal inner strength to do it. You're doing it in combination with the Spirit of God as the Spirit kills fleshly desires you're supposed to reject them. 
And as you and the Spirit work in cooperation one with another, you gain victory over these areas of your life. So four ways that I'm going to show you this morning to keep from sinning. If the idea is self-control, it's self-constraint, it's not being the problem yourself and not entering into sin so you avoid the church discipline process, then I'm going to show you four ways to keep from sinning in the power of the Spirit this morning. So number one would be to resist temptation. And that's, that's internally. I'm talking internally here. And that is when temptation arises in your heart, you are to reject it. If it's sinful, obviously. Ephesians 6.13, it's not a passage that's unfamiliar to you. That would be putting on the full armor of God. In the context of the book of Ephesians, the armor of God means putting on Christ. All the pieces of equipment, the panoply of God, if you will, uh, the armor is Christ, is putting on Christ. Uh, James 4, 7, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's the idea of, of resisting, not giving in, not caving in, but, but holding your ground and standing firm, resisting the temptation to sin. That's, that's internally. Externally, uh, opportunities for sin are going to come from the outside towards you. And so with those, you need to run. You need to run from tempting situations. And I'm mindful, uh, I've given you some passages there. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality, right? Run from it because every other sin that a man commits is outside of his body. But the man who sins sexually sins against his own body. So flee immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee idolatry. Run from it. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts. And in the context of youthful lusts, you got greed, you got immorality, you got all kinds of things in that passage. So, so flee, run from those things, Timothy. Don't cave into them. Run the other direction. So you resist, you run. Third, you repent. Repent of sin as the Spirit brings conviction in your life. Repentance is not a one-time thing that happens upon conversion. Repentance for a believer is a way of life. It should be a way of life. And so as the Spirit brings conviction in your life, you need to repent of sin. Um, Turn the other direction from it. Repentance just means turning the other direction. But repentance, uh, I do want to look at this passage, Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to walk you through what repentance looks like because this is important as we talk about the church discipline process and we want to bring about repentance in a person's life. They've got to know what repentance looks like, right? What does repentance look like? So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 32 And I just want to walk through this passage with you, and then we'll, and then we'll um, say a few more things about it here. Uh, verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, or the new man, which 
in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So there's this idea of removing or hanging up or taking off the old dirty garments, if you will, renewing your mind with the word of God, and then replacing those behaviors with the new man, righteous behaviors. And then the Apostle Paul goes through, and he gives you several examples of that in the text. You see that in verse 25, what we lay aside is falsehood. Renew your mind with the word of God, and you put in its place truth, right? Speaking truthfulness. You see it in verse 26. Uh, It's a little harder to get to, but this idea of being angry here is actually in the original. uh, The idea of being agitated. It's not anger, it's agitation. And so in the midst of your agitation, don't sin. And the reason, uh, or the thing that we replace it with over in Psalm 4.4, where this is adapted from, is meditation. So you put off agitation, you put on meditation. 28, instead of stealing, you're, you're not going to steal anymore, but you're going to put that off and you're going to renew your mind with the word of God and you're going to work. You're going to work hard with your own hands so that there's a purpose there that you can share with others. That's what a repentant person would look like. They would stop stealing. They'd understand what the word of God says about stealing, why it's a sin. They'd work hard with their own hands And then they'd share with other people. Instead of taking what doesn't belong from other people, they give to other people. It's repentance. Verse 29. No longer letting unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only speaking words that are good for edification. So you put off the unwholesome speech, the divisiveness, the bitter tongue, the nasty words. You put that off. You renew your mind with the word of God. You understand how God sees it, what God expects from you, and you replace it with speaking edifying words that give grace to those who hear. Uh, Verse 30 is connected to verse 29 uh, in that when one speaks in such a way that brings about divisiveness, they grieve the spirit of God. They grieve the spirit of God. In verse 31, you see it there. Uh, Put away bitterness and all of the subcategories of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Uh, Put those things off along with all malice and replace it with kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness in the same way that God has forgiven you in Christ. Now, how has God forgiven you in Christ? Well, he not only forgave you of your sins, but he removed his wrath from you. So that's the whole point. If, if God isn't even wrathful towards this other person, then who are you to remain wrathful towards them? Okay, so, so, so putting off these things, renewing the mind, putting on righteous behavior in its place, that's what repentance is. That's what it looks like, and that's what we as believers are to do. So I just have some R's Some more R's for you here to think this through. So remove the sin. Uh, Rethink the sin. Uh, Look at it in the way God looks at it in the word of God. See it the way God sees it. So 
Like, for instance, let's say immorality, okay? Guys, you struggle with pornography. Well, stop sinning for sure. Put that away. But, but look in the scriptures, renew your mind, understand how God views harlots, right? How does God view them? What does he think about them? What does he think about sexual immorality? And then replace it with righteous behavior, which would be showing love toward your wife or showing respect for women as being created in the image of God. So if you're struggling in this area, this is how to overcome it, right? If you struggle with anger, laying aside anger, laying aside bitterness, and renewing your mind with the word of God, understanding what God says about having control over your spirit, and replacing it with forgiveness, kindness, being tender-hearted. So remove, rethink, and replace. That's the process of repentance. But there's a couple other that I uh, processes here involved, a couple other, not processes, what's the word I'm looking for? A couple other components, if you will, of repentance that I think people fall short on. They fall short on. And that is to repudiate the sin. To repudiate it. To say, this is wrong, God sees it as wrong, and therefore I reject it too. Okay? And that's having a strength of character because uh, when people fall back into sin, what do they tend to do? They tend to uh, romance the sin a little bit. They make it, they make it sound a little better, kind of like their romantic remembrance of an ex-girlfriend or an ex-boyfriend or something, right? It wasn't so bad when I was doing it. Uh, I just kind of didn't know how to control it, but it's really not so bad. No, in order to repent, you need to see the sin as something that God hates, not only because it's offensive in itself, but because it offends God's character, and you need to repudiate it and just say, this is wrong. This is wrong. I'm not going to do this anymore because God hates this. And one other thing, remunerate. And that is the idea that if you've sinned against somebody in particular, you need to sort of pay them back. If you've stolen something from them, you need to replace it. Right? You need to make it right. You need to make it right. All of that combined... I think, if I could sum it up this way, repentance involves not just feeling sorry about your sin. I said this last week, but it it involves the emotions. You, You should be broken. You should be sorrowful over having committed a sin. It involves the emotion. It involves the brain. You should, you should, in your intellect, see it as sin and reject it as such. And it also involves the will. It's the emotion, the intellect, and the will. You have to turn from it. You have, to, you have to, in a sense, it takes effort to turn away from it. Okay? So emotion, intellect, and will. So we need to resist sin. We need to run from sin. We need to repent of sin continually. It's a, it's a way of life. And finally, we, we need to rely, rely on the Holy Spirit's power, his presence, and his person. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, more R's. Uh, This just sort of happened. I don't know. More R's. But request his help. Um, And that is the idea of prayer. You're not going to overcome sin without enlisting the Spirit's aid. Okay? So, So requesting help, asking him 
to bolster your faith, to help you to resist, to help you to run. Ask for the Spirit's enablement. Secondly, read his word. Massive doses of the word of God, uh, it's the universal solvent. It, It dilutes the effects and the power of sin in your life. The more you read the Word of God, the more you understand the will of God, the the more it dilutes the power and the effect of sin in your life. Just massive quantities. Read the Scriptures. And the reason why I think that is is because it's just not information in the Bible. It doesn't just reveal information. It reveals God. It reveals God and His character. And if you know God and you love God and you want to be like God then you will, you will re- reject the sin, okay? It, it reveals God. Colossians said, let the, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. James says, receive the word of God implanted, right? It's this idea of just ruminating, uh, ruminating reading the word of God. I guess that's the next one, ruminating, <laughs> meditating on the truth of Scripture, the more you read it, the more you should meditate on it. Just let it consume your thoughts. Let it consume your mind. As you're, as you're living life, you're recalling Scripture. You're running everything through the grid of Scripture, right? Ruminate on the Word of God and the truth contained in it. And then, finally, respond to his leading. Uh, don't quench the Spirit. If the Spirit is leading you in a direction or leading you to forsake something, don't resist. Don't resist the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. But respond to Him. Respond to His prompting. Okay? So, so that should do it, right? No problem. You got this nail. You, you, can, you never have to sin again, beloved. Right? But uh, it's, it's kind of like I... We know these things, but they're just good reminders. Uh, Resist sin, run from sin, repent of sin, and rely on the Spirit. Okay? And that is the first way to avoid church discipline. Don't keep yourself up all night thinking, I really don't want to go through church discipline. I'm really anxious about it. Well, you won't have to if you don't enter into sin. Right? Just run. (laughs) Just run. Resist it. Resist sin. Second way, so you're going to keep yourself from sinning, but you also need to keep others from stumbling. Uh, You can't be a problem in another person's life. You can't be a problem in the church. You can't cause other people to stumble and not expect that there's going to be some sort of consequence for it, right? Uh, Believers are not supposed to be a source of stumbling for others by their actions. And when I talk about stumbling, what I'm talking about is you know, not ruining somebody else's faith. Not ruining them. Not shipwrecking their faith. Uh, why don't you go ahead and turn to Matthew 18. And, and from this point on, I, I'll be basing a lot of our discussion in Matthew 18. Because that is obviously the classic passage on the subject. And you won't hear it again for six years till David gets there, so... So I just wanted to look at Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. Let's read that together. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, 
Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives, such, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for, that, for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is the will of your Father who is in heaven. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So keep others from stumbling. This is, of course, the backdrop to what we're going to talk about in the near future here, verses 15 and following, on church discipline. But this section of Matthew, in a sense, leads into the discussion on church discipline. And the discussion is, don't be a stumbling block to other people. Um, this, this is all prompted by the question you see in verse 1. Who then is greatest in the kingdom? Uh, there's, there's actually in the Greek, there's a little particle there called ara. And what it means is, who is really greatest in the kingdom? Who is really? It kind of changes the, uh, the force of the question here. And the idea is that the disciples coming off this discussion, either in verse uh, chapter 16 about Peter being the rock, or chapter 17, this discussion about not having to pay poll taxes. Either way, they come off of these discussions and they want to know, hey, which one of us is really going to be greatest in the kingdom? Or which one of us really is greatest in the kingdom? The word there is present. They want to know, hey, which one of us is the greatest? Like Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest, right? And so that's the force of this question here. And so Jesus' answer to the question is what we're talking about this morning. And I'm going to build this case just by summarizing through this text. I don't have time to go verse by verse all the way through it, but we are going to sort of treat it in a summary overview fashion so you can get the thrust and the gist of what this passage is talking about. Part one of the answer to this question is that those who exercise childlike humility are the ones that are greatest in the kingdom. 
the second half of the chapter is those who exercise Christ-like forgiveness are greatest in the kingdom. But all of 18 is based on that question, who's greatest? And Jesus is answering it, and he's splitting his answer into two parts, verses 1 to 14 and verses 15 to 35. Christ-like, or childlike humility and Christ-like forgiveness. That's the issue. So when we talk about church discipline in the second part of this passage, what we're talking about is, is the issue of forgiveness. What we're talking about in the front side is the issue of humility. So who's really greatest in the kingdom? That's their question. They want to know. And so Jesus, what does he do? He calls this little child over to himself and uses him as a living illustration. And he says, children are greatest. And does he mean a childlike faith? No, he means childlike humility. Childlike humility. Uh, Notice that he says in verse 3 the idea of you need to become converted and become like a child. And and what this is talking about in the context is uh, losing one's human prestige and accepting kingdom values, if I could say it that way. It's becoming like a little child and doing away with all all the elements of this world as far as human prestige go. Uh, Both verbs, the idea of being converted and becoming like a child, they're part of the same act. It's, It's having your loyalties changed from worldly values to godly values. It's, it's becoming like a little child, humble. Uh, look at verse 3. I mean, it's, it's just the language here is really strong, and it seems to be that the disciples were heading in the wrong direction and thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to have thought. They were being proud, and so Jesus is warning them uh, and, and the force of the language here is a double negative. It's really strong language. He says they would not even get into the kingdom at all, let alone have big places in it if they didn't change the direction they were going with their pride. It's a very strong rebuke of the disciples here. Uh, listen, unless you become converted, unless you become like a child, unless you abandon your pride, you're not going to see the kingdom at all, let alone be great in it. And so this, again, is a discussion of pride. It's pride versus humility. 18.4. So Jesus continues, and here he says it very directly. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, very direct, is greatest. And whoever receives one of these humble children is great. So welcoming other disciples is like welcoming Jesus himself. And this this passage is not talking about childlike faith. It's talking about childlike humility. Look at verses 6 to 9. The the tone of Jesus here takes just a really dramatic shift. So he says, whoever causes one of these little ones, uh, and the little ones here now are the children, to stumble in their faith, Uh, they would be better off to die of some sort of dramatic type of death. 
this is a millstone of a donkey is what we're talking about. It's one of those giant millstones that presses out the grain. It would be better that you have that gigantic millstone tied around your neck and cast into the deepest part of the ocean and literally drowned a violent death than to cause one of these little ones to stumble in their faith. A humble person. Again, the, the point is the contrast between pride and humility here. If you are proud and your pride and your arrogance is causing this humble person to stumble in their faith and you're ruining their faith, it would be better for you to be cast in the furthest part of the ocean and drown than to do that. Uh, this, is, this is significant. This is, these are catastrophic consequences of causing a humble believer to stumble in their faith. And, and don't miss my point here is that it's, it's the cause. You're causing somebody else to stumble in your pride and your arrogance. It's, it's not just keep yourself from sinning. It's keep others from stumbling. You have an obligation to care for them, to not cause them, to not be the root of the problem. Now, he, he uses some strong language here, right? He says that if it'd be better if you chop off your hands, or right? Uh, if your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut them off. Throw them from you. It'd be better if you'd be born with one eye and get into the kingdom than to have two eyes and cause one of them to stumble. Uh, one, if one of them causes somebody, other, somebody else to stumble. A very strong language. And if you look over at Matthew 5... Pastor Dave has already talked about this kind of language. Matthew five twenty nine to 30. Uh, backing up, uh, Jesus in verse 27 is talking about committing adultery, right? And he says, Everyone of you who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery within his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So it's the same language, hyperbole. He's talking very strongly. Uh, but here, he's referring to your own members in Matthew 5, leading you into sin. Over in Matthew 18, he's talking about it leading to somebody else um, being ruined in their faith, being the cause of their stumbling. So they're both hyperbole, but different contexts, different contexts. So let me just say this. The hands, the eyes, the feet are not the root of the sin problem. The heart is, right? The heart uses the hands, the eyes, and the feet to enact its wicked plans, and that brings condemnation on the whole person. But it's the heart. The heart is the source of the problem, not the hands, the eyes, and the feet. Right? So, in India and other countries, I believe they used to chop off people's hands if they were thieves, right? Does that, does that rid them of the problem of being a thief? No, they'll find another way. They'll find another way. Uh, the word stumble in the, in the context of Matthew 18 is the word scandalon. And so it's where we get the word scandalous from or scandal. 
And in this, in this case, it's a continual action. And it's the idea that somebody is continually being a problem, causing other people to stumble. And by stumble, I mean, again, shipwrecking other people's faith. Uh, 18.7, and notice that Jesus does not just declare one woe, but two woes. Woe. <laughs> Whoa. So one is sort of general in nature against stumbling blocks that occur in the world, and that's, that's general. But the other is specific against the man who continually causes others to stumble in their faith. It's specific against that man who causes somebody to stumble, and a woe is not a good thing, just so you know. And it's because of their pride. Again, in the context, it's because of their pride, they are causing the humble ones to stumble in their faith. 11 to 14, people have a tendency to think it goes with the verses that follow, but I don't think so. I think it goes with what precedes it, and I'll tell you why, because look how it concludes in verse 14. So it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. He's right back to the idea of these humble little, little ones, these little children. But it is talking then, if that's true, about God's heart for his sheep. But it's more than that. It's talking about God's humility in rescuing his sheep. It's talking about God's humility. Uh, and so the, the one who causes one of these little ones to stumble is, in essence, fighting against God himself. Uh, God humbled himself to rescue his sheep. And so you better not find yourself fighting against God's purposes by despising one of those little sheep. That's the point. In your pride and in your arrogance, if God humbled himself to rescue these sheep, then in your pride, you cause them to stumble you'll be fighting against God himself. So as I said, as, as you go through this, there's a sharp contrast between pride and humility in this text. And pride is the root of all evil, and if it's left unchecked in one's life, it may ultimately lead to you having to face church discipline. Causing others to stumble is rooted in pride. That's what this passage is talking about. So pride causes people to do some incredibly stupid things, like asking questions about who's greatest in the kingdom to the king who's about to die for it. That's a really stupid question. It's probably safe to say that most church splits uh, are, are a result of pride and not really doctrinal differences, right? I think we can probably safely say that. In fact, pride manifests itself in a refusal to repent. And ultimately, that's really the underlying offense in church discipline. Whatever the original sin was, it's the refusal to repent of it that leads to the church discipline. And that is pride. That is pride. Whatever the sin is that started the problem, uh, it's what will conclude it as well if that sin of pride is not repented of. 
If they won't let go and they won't be restored and they won't be reconciled, you have nowhere else to go. So the refusal to repent becomes the problem. And this is why the elders really can't give you a list of all the sins that we would discipline somebody for. Because you know what? It could be any sin. It could be any sin if you won't let it go. And it's causing problems. Right? Any sin against a brother or sister in which one refuses to repent and be reconciled, it fractures the relationships within the body of Christ. And when those relationships are fractured, it goes to the sin of divisiveness. And if that won't be repented of, then it's grounds for church discipline. But it could be anything. It could be anything that starts it out, right? Pride is what lies behind lying, deception, anger, all these things we've looked at this morning. Stealing, immorality, unwholesome speech, bitterness, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, Everything like these, beloved. That's not an exhaustive list. That's just, you know, we can't have a list long enough. That's the reality. But it's, it's the refusal to repent when you sin that would lead to discipline. These are the very things that may cause the humble new believers, baby believers, to stumble in their faith. So all the New Testament exhortations to lay these things aside, put away your pride, walk in humility, they're all over the place, right? James chapter 4, 1 through 10. Why don't you turn there? And we're going through the book of James in Phoebus, (laughs) Foothill Bible School. In James 4, 1 through 10. So what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And I, I won't read the whole thing, but, but look what the solution is over in verse 6. He gives a great, greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. So submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Now, verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Uh, what is the source of the problems? For one, it's their pleasures, it's their desires, it's their fleshly lusts. They want what they want what they, when they want it. They won't give it up. It's leading to quarrels, conflicts, fighting. And so what does James say the solution is? Pride is the problem. Humility is the answer. Humility. Let me just run through eight ways then, eight keys to not causing other people to stumble. 
And these are things you probably already know, but again, by way of reminder, uh, just trying to be practical in our understanding of these things. Number one, put off self-righteous attitudes and walk in humility with one another. Secondly, put off what you think you deserve and figure out how you can serve others. So deserve versus serve. What do you think you have a right to? You know, there's a question we always ask in counseling. It's twofold. What do you want that you're not getting? And what are you getting that you don't want? And that sort of reveals the attitude of your heart. What is it that's motivating you to do what you do? So put off what you think you deserve and figure out how you can serve other people in the body of Christ. Third, don't judge or look down upon one another, but show compassion instead. You know, it's really easy to condemn somebody else when they're struggling with a sin area in their life. And rather than show compassion and try to help them with it, we just point the finger and we condemn them. And I think the point here is that a shepherd would be compassionate towards somebody who is struggling. Right? Wouldn't you want somebody to show you compassion if you were struggling? I would. Fourth, don't expect others to live up to your standards. Expect them to live up to God's standards. And many of us just have ungodly, unbiblical standards, not only for ourselves, but for other people. We want, we want to hold people to, to what the biblical standard is, not what our standard is. So these are all ways to avoid causing other people to stumble in their faith. Fifth, don't look at others with such a critical eye. Save that eye for yourself. Look at your own life. I'm sure you have lots of areas that you could grow in before you start being critical of other people. Sixth, have an accurate estimation of yourself. And I mean accurate. Right? You are not the greatest in the kingdom. (laughs) Seventh, care about what God cares about. What does God care about? Pure and undefiled religion is what? That's just one example. Caring for the widows and orphans in their time of distress. So care about what God cares about. And eighth and final, uh, reject what God rejects, i.e. sin. Again, these are just ways to keep others from stumbling. Don't allow your pride to cause other people to stumble in their faith. You need to keep yourself from sinning, and you need to keep others from stumbling. And if you will do that, uh, proactively, you will avoid the need for church discipline in your own life. You don't have to lay awake nights and think about it. Just show some self-control and some self-discipline and some self-constraint. Now, I said last week, you know, many people are very anxious about 
this whole series, I've talked to several people now, and they've come up to me and said, I just, I think about, I hear the words church discipline, and I get all nervous. I go, well, why? Why? I don't understand. I mean, if you're not being the cause of a problem, then what do you have to worry about? It's not like we go around and knock on doors and say, excuse me, are you sitting in there? Um, it, it really boils down to putting pride to death and walking in humility. And even if you commit a sin, if you repent of it, it ends the process immediately. Right? You know, these things are not hard, if you will, but walk in the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to control you. Yield to His control over your life. And we've talked about how to do that, but but being submissive to the Spirit of God and, and working at the relationships within the body of Christ, working hard at keeping communication open, keeping short accounts, forgiveness, repentance of sin. Uh, when these things happen, when we love one another biblically the way we're supposed to love one another, the need for church discipline won't arise, right? It's kind of a no-brainer. But next week... If it does arise, we'll talk about how to deal with it. Let's pray. Father, we pray as believers that we would be able to walk in the Spirit, that, that Father, we would forsake the lusts that so easily entangle our hearts, that we would be able to walk in obedience to the Word of God, that we would submit ourselves and yield ourselves to your Spirit's control over our lives. Father, in this way, we hope to maintain the unity of this fellowship, and not only that, but our close walk with you. Father, ultimately, that is what we desire. It's what we long for to be in close fellowship with you, and so we pray your Spirit would enable us in these things, uh, not only for ourselves, but to bring you the greatest amount of glory. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. God bless you, beloved. We will see you next week.